politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our liberties to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here pre-recorded, but for you guys, it is Tuesday, September 28th. I will be out again Wednesday. This is the final week I'm out with the midweek blues. Got a lot going on, but definitely wanted to make sure we got you covered for Tuesday this week. And we have a really exciting show coming up. The most common question I get asked after how do I treat COVID when government is killing people and denying them treatment is how do I get out of being forced to get maltreatment? So we will have a lawyer on today who has taken on so many of these cases, giving us an update and some advice on what to do. Um, Before we have him on, just a couple of things. It is interesting. September 28th is the date in 1928. Okay? 93 years ago to this day, Sir Alexander Fleming, a budding young bacteriologist, accidentally discovered one of the greatest inventions of all time, and that is penicillin. Well, if he would have been around during the era of the pharma cartel, um, he would have been squelched. Very simple things that were able to save so many lives. And here we are with so much technology and so much money we don't know what to do with, yet we can't even come up with a cure. But it's not true because we do. We, do, we have plenty of ways of doing it, but they're blocking it. So... I think it's pretty apropos on this day that you know we we celebrate a true invention and and again you know these things I always believe in my religious beliefs that God tries to bring things out that appears to be accidental from our end but that was the predetermined time that God wanted us to discover them but what does not work is the clot shots It's funny, there's this BBC article out. COVID-19 in Wales. A third of positive cases are unvaccinated. Like, what? Huh? Now, you'll think like, oh, they're saying only a third. No, and you read the article and they're like, man, this is unbelievable. Look at all these unvaccinated people. The irony is lost on them. Two-thirds of the cases are fully vaccinated people. And it's completely lost on these dudes. They can't even read their own graphs. And then the irony is there's a subtitle in the middle of their thing. Why are so many vaccinated people in the hospital? The sheer number of people vaccinated. Um, mean that statistically double vaccinated people will still be a significant portion of the hospital patients. See, the, here's the game they play. It's fine if you have, like, literally a handful of rare hospitalizations. And you'll be like, well, Daniel, it's numbers if 95% of seniors are vaccinated. So then, yeah, I mean, 95% of the the case in the hospital or, you know, even less than that, it's 85%. So it's it's working. But that would be if you have a small number. But what we're finding, and especially in America and a lot of these states, is They've come under their worst hospitalization crisis ever throughout the last 18 months. So that's called not working. But that's where we are 
I never thought we'd be in this position where they'd be able to mandate something that prima facie is not working. They keep citing this uh, Jacobson case, and at least at the time, the science was pretty clear for what they had then that at least it was working. Here, it doesn't work one iota to stop transmission. So that's your public policy goal, the state vital state interest to stop transmission doesn't work. So at best, they resort to, well, it ameliorates some of the symptoms, but even that wears off, and we see it's wearing off and has worn off, but that should have no bearings on this. That should have no bearings on your constitutional rights. Even if it did work, it shouldn't. So we're going to get to that with our guest today. First, a word from our sponsor. You know, folks, there was once a time when private citizens used to be private. The internet changed our life. Big tech working with big government. They spy on us. They watch everything we browse, search, tweet. I can't believe how long I was going on without protecting my own devices. So finally, this year... I turned to ExpressVPN, and I got vaccinated. I vaccinated my computer from government spying. I put a mask on it, and unlike for COVID, this actually works. Basically, what it does is it makes your IP address fully masked, encrypted, so you know no one could monitor it. Data harvesters using your IP address can't locate it because your IP address is now made anonymous. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. The best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. See, I have my computer modus operandi set up and I don't like tampering with it. I hate new stuff. So I was very apprehensive, but it was like, boom, the click of a button, that's it. When your computer comes on, done. I don't even notice it's there. So if if I could manage to get this up without a hitch, you could as well. Um, don't allow yourself to be spied on ever again. Um, believe me, your data is your business, and it needs to be secured. Secure it with the number one rated VPN on the market I trust. Visit expressvpn.com slash conservative to get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash conservative. Go to expressvpn.com slash conservative to learn more on how to mask and vaccinate your computer from big tech. So as I noted, the biggest question I get asked medically is, how do I get a hold of early treatment? How do I get a hold of a doctor? So it's hard to answer a thousand people. So I have doctors on the show that try to give you advice. Well, the second most common question is legal advice. What do I do with the mandates? It's school teachers. It's even students in states like uh, California, Los Angeles in particular. It is military personnel, Obviously, government workers, but really workers in in places even like Michelin tires right now. I mean, a lot of companies, you wouldn't think that they're very woke. They're getting involved in this, and people want to know, I mean, this can't be happening to me where I have to make a life decision. Either I I have no job, or and often you can't work in that entire field. It's not like you can get another job, or I have to take something that often is unnecessary for a lot of people, 
or it's it's riskier than other things that are available. And this is unbelievable. It's not the United States of America. Where is the legal help? And we keep seeing all these court cases where they cite this Jacobson opinion, which is like citing Dred Scott. And as we've noted, there's a number of reasons that even if you believe in Jacobson, it doesn't apply to what's in front of us, especially with the vaccine failing before our eyes and not fulfilling that vital state interest of even stopping spread at all. It appears to be spreading it even more. Um, So what is going on? Do we have any hope in the court? Um, Is there some Ezekiel mixed with my Jeremiah? Well, I can only be Jeremiah, so we have to invite a guest on. We've had Brian Fest on before. He is a civil rights attorney from Connecticut who has really put in a lot of his own time and money um, and risked his own legal practice, just like we see doctors doing risking their practice to treat people. He is trying to stand up for human rights, and he has an organization that I really, really need you guys to support. We the Pat- We the Patriots USA. WeThePatriotsUSA.org, um, and that's also where you could uh, request help to be a plaintiff. A lot of you want to be plaintiffs. We're going to discover that all today with Brian. All right, Brian, thanks so much for coming back and joining us today. Thanks for having me back on, Daniel. And I'll, let me just begin by saying <laughs> I am not Ezekiel <laughs> by any stretch, but um, I appreciate you having me back on. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Jacobson in the intro there, because I just want to say that is the most, I believe, the most misinterpreted Supreme Court decision of our day. Uh, it is just abused. It is used constantly to stand for the proposition that the state has the police power to vaccinate pretty much without exception. And that's not at all what that case says. And that case was decided not even on the basis of religious freedom. Henning Jacobson was not claiming a religious objection to vaccination. He was claiming a personal liberty interest because he had had an adverse side effect or a medical exemption in, in, of sorts in, in a time before the Americans with Disabilities Act or anything like that. And that case was decided before the incorporation doctrine. So before <laughs> the, um, the Bill of Rights was interpreted to apply to the states through the 14th Amendment, so yep. that case is 1905. That case is basically irrelevant under today's legal scheme. That case was also decided, interestingly enough, before Roe v. Wade, before Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, cases I have a lot of problems with. But the point is that the court developed in the 1970s and going forward this idea of bodily autonomy and a, a right to bodily privacy under the Constitution. And that did not exist, of course, in the time Sure. Uh, Jacobson. So, so much has changed in the legal landscape to use that case and hold it up and say you can just apply it blindly to what's going on in 2020, 2021 is just utter foolishness. And I can't believe the the garbage I've heard out of the mouths of many legal scholars just proclaiming that without even mentioning without even mentioning any any of the things I just mentioned about the incorporation doctrine, about I mean, things they know about, about you know, Roe v. Wade and, and, and the Casey decision. I mean, they, they just completely ignore it like it doesn't exist. Sure. I mean, and, and then, and then even, even going with Jacobson, there's a number of other factors. Jacobson mentions the word legislature over a dozen times in the opinion. Um, almost none of these are, it, yeah, I think none of them are being promulgated by the legislature, their executive. Another mitigating factor is that, you know, it was... Um, 
it was a fine. You know, it was about $150 in today's dollars. We saw from NFIB v. uh, Obamacare and NFIB v. Sebelius, right, that it was a matter of, yeah, they have the power to fine you, to tax you, but to basically say you can't live a functioning life without something, that is a different story that was not going on with Jacobson. Obviously, you have the efficacy. Um, you have the safety concerns. Um, at the time, the the uh, you know really it was discovered in 1796, uh, but it was in wide use for several decades before 1905. Uh, so there's a lot of differences, but nonetheless, here's where I want to start, Brian. I don't want to talk about you and I who believe in godly values and constitutional values because our court system largely does not. Our political system does not. I want to talk practical in the system that unfortunately we have to deal with and people need success. We need the best plaintiffs um, in the best cases. So I want you to give us a little bit of hope because what we're seeing is that they're all applying Jacobson. There's no right to body autonomy. Drop dead. But use your your focus mainly on the religious liberty side of it, and you believe that that is the more auspicious angle, whether you agree it should be or not, based on recent and longstanding precedent. And we have a victory in New York already on that. Do you think that has the ability to broadly blow the mandate wide open? Yes, absolutely. So just to touch on what you said uh, first is. Uh, religious liberty has a long-standing uh, precedent in this in this country, going back to the founding of this country. Which is why I always tell people religious exemptions are generally more successful than medical exemptions for the simple reason. I mean, the ADA we don't have the case law to support it. We don't have as much of a foundation. The ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, has only been around since 1990. A lot of people don't realize that. So disability protections have only been in federal law since 1990. Um, that's only a little over 30 years, whereas religious liberty protections, we have lines of cases going back to the beginning of this country. So you have hundreds of years of precedent. So, yes, I do think standing on religious liberty is a much more, much more solid ground. Um, the New York case that you mentioned, we filed along. Well, several other organizations also filed lawsuits, but we were the first to file a lawsuit in defense of New York state health care workers because the state of New York. Governor Kathy Hochul and Howard Zucker, who is the commissioner of the uh, Department of, of Health in New York, issued a regulation saying that, or what they called a regulation, <laughs> stating that, like you said, it's not coming from the legislature, stating that all New York healthcare workers had to get this shot and could only apply for medical exemptions, not religious exemptions. So that's not even allowed for you to even ask for religious exemptions. So we said, well, that's clearly unconstitutional for a state government to say that you're not allowed to have religious freedom in the workplace. You're not allowed to have religious accommodations in the workplace. We filed a lawsuit, and we also filed a temporary, an emergency motion for a temporary restraining order against it. So while the litig- what that means is while the litigation is playing out, that that regulation would be stayed. It can't go into effect. We were initially denied by an Eastern District of New York judge within less than an hour of filing it on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> he, he denied it without any explanation. We filed an appeal to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit on Friday granted us a stay, granted the stay pending their hearing to hear it by a full three-judge panel at the Second Circuit, which is going to happen this Wednesday. Wow. So 
all of these New York healthcare workers were slated to have to get uh, vaccinated by today, September 27th, well, yesterday now, September 27th, or be fired. And by having that stay in place, we were able to stop that. And now we're, uh, you know, now that, that regulation yep. cannot go into effect yet. And, and we're going to have a hearing on Wednesday at the Second Circuit uh, to decide whether or not that stay should be permanent while this litigation plays out. If ultimately we, we do not get a favorable decision, we will immediately appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. We think, given the, the, the high court's position recently on religious liberty and, and the high-profile nature of this case, we think there's a very good chance that that will be reviewed. Um, and we like our chances at the Supreme wow. Court. So, yes, if it, gets to the, if it gets to the Supreme Court and, and if they ultimately decide on the underlying merits of the case that it's illegal for a state to do this, then, yes, that would have precedent all over the United States that no state government could tell someone they're not allowed to have a religious exemption in the workplace. Now, whether that would apply to schools and other things, I, I don't know that the decision would be that broad. But at least in the workplace, I think it would be broader than just healthcare workers. I think it would be broad enough to cover all employment situations. Sure, sure. So, I mean, the thing we have here is that obviously, you know, it wouldn't help with private entities, but certainly government, government mandating it um, in the you know context of employment. Um, and now, now my question to you is: What if the healthcare system is doing it on their own? You know, University of um, I'm in Maryland, so University of Maryland healthcare system without the force of the state or federal federal government, presumably that would not be covered by such a ruling. Um, yeah, I mean, with well, I mean, it's probably not because this is going to be deciding whether the state sure. can make such such a regulation and so i probably wouldn't apply to private employers but the but what i'm hoping we get is at least some good language in the decision even if it's dicta yes um some language some language stating that you know you can't unilaterally say that title seven doesn't apply to employees because title seven of the civil rights act of 1964 states very clearly that you must attempt to accommodate someone who requests a religious exemption. You have to engage in an interactive process, an interactive dialogue is the term the courts have used, and, and you have to engage with that employee to try to accommodate them. You cannot have a unilateral mandate that says, no, you have to get this, and there's no religious exemptions allowed, no religious accommodations allowed, we're not even going to listen to you, which is what the state of New York is saying. You cannot, that's clearly in violation of Title VII with regard to the workplace. Um, and so I do think if there's some language in that decision, the ultimate decision, I mean, the decision on the emergency motion probably won't have that, but the yes. ultimate decision in the lawsuit, I'm, I'm hoping they include that. So that'll apply to all employers in the United States. Um, it's very, very important. And, and listen, we've, we've had more victories than just this. And I, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell your listeners about some of the victories we've had recently. Sure. Um, we've had, uh, victories in colleges, especially for college students. So we've gotten mandates, we've gotten religious exemption denials, I should say, overturned at Stanford University, Columbia University, Yale University, um, as well as uh, many state schools. Uh, we have a professor, actually, from Columbia University who is 100% remote. He doesn't teach any of his classes in person. He never steps foot on campus. He does all the classes remote. He uh, was told he needed to get this shot or he was fired. 
we helped him get a religious exemption so that he now is able to work uh, without having to be under this mandate, which he should from the beginning. I mean, he was a, I mean, come on, he was a fully remote employee. He had absolutely no interaction with uh, students or staff. He's posing no threat. Um, Not that unvaccinated people pose any threat anyway, (laughs) but um, we have a lot of stories like that. We also have some stories. We have pending litigation um, against several universities uh, for students uh, throughout the country, Colorado, uh, Missouri, uh, Nebraska, just to name a few that I can think of off the top of my head, where students have been denied and kicked out of school. So we have a medical student who attends a state school uh, I'm not going to name it yet, but it's out in Colorado and was told he cannot um, continue his education. He cannot continue his education unless he gets the shot. His religious exemption was denied because they said it wasn't part of a comprehensive system of beliefs. It was just his personal beliefs. Well, that's nothing in the Constitution says that if you don't belong to an organized religion or a comprehensive system of beliefs, that your beliefs aren't entitled to protection. But this is a state university that's saying this. And is telling him he is going to be not going to be able to finish his school. He's in medical school. This he happens to be an Air Force veteran as well. Okay, so this is a veteran case as well. We have the same school in Colorado, the same school. We have a dental student who's an immigrant from Venezuela here on a student visa. And she's being told, too bad, you don't get this shot. You're not only kicked out of school, you're going to be deported back to Venezuela. So um, those are two really big cases that we have you know, we have now taken on our legal team is, is moving forward with those and is going to be filing uh, litigation against that school very soon. So you'll be hearing about that soon. So even even in the cases where people are denied, we are here to help. Um, the biggest thing we need, though, the biggest obstacle for us, as you mentioned, is funding. Um, that's the, yeah, that's funding, the yeah. only reason we're not able to help more people. And Unfortunately, right now, I'm, I'm at the point where we're, we're so flooded with requests that I'm turning away more people than I than I can take on because we just don't have the dollars there. So if there are people listening that have the means to support us, especially monthly donations, that's a really big deal because that gives us a predictable stream of income so we can budget for these lawsuits. Because these lawsuits, as you know, Daniel, are extremely expensive. I mean, one lawsuit could be fifty to $100,000. Um, these civil rights cases, these constitutional law cases, especially when we have to appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court, that's an extraordinary amount of legal work. Um, and we have very, very good attorneys to do it, but they can't do it all for free. <laughs> so it's weekpatriotusa.org. No, exactly, exactly. And that's why I, I really, I mean, I feel as strongly about this as I do about our Go our not GoFundMe, but our crowdsourcing page we're creating for Dr. Eric Henson. Um you know, he's treating people and you're treating them on the legal side of WeThePatriotsUSA.org. Um, Brian, what are some of the best type of plaintiffs that you're looking for? If you want to get a nice, juicy, broad religious liberty case that, you know, is it is it employment discrimination? Is it a federal worker? Is it a, a, a school teacher? What What are some of the best plaintiffs? Uh, if people are listening, and we have thousands of people that are obviously in this unfortunate predicament, what are some of the best people to use as a plaintiff? Well, absolutely. Any federal or state government employee or any public employee, so an employee of a, a town, a municipality, a city, um, any public employee uh, makes for a great plaintiff if they've been denied religious accommodations in the workplace. 
And the reason I say public employees, government employees make the best plaintiffs very often is that the government is subject to more than just Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. The government is subject also to the United States Constitution. Uh, they have to honor the Bill of Rights, especially the First Amendment in this case, also the, you know, uh, beyond the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. They've, they're, they're beholden to so much more than a private employer is. Private employers, for the most part, and those of your listeners who are libertarian-minded would probably agree with this, for the most part, should be left alone. The government really shouldn't be able to tell them what to do. They should be able to run their business the way they want to run their business. And they're not bound by the Constitution either. Whereas a public entity here. No, they're not, except the 14th, the, the 14th Amendment, EEOC, and all that stuff applies to them every day. But I, I get what you're saying that there's not that's not a juicy plaintiff because unfortunately we already know that suddenly the courts are super libertarian <laughs> when it comes to this, not you know, other things. So you're saying, and, and I totally get it. So if you're a federal employee or, or a state or local employee, that's the best because a clean shot government worker, government is not applying liberty, religious liberty, equal protection, equal protection in that, in that context. Um, yeah, and there, and, and, I like where you're headed, but let me, let me challenge yeah. you a little bit. Okay. Let me challenge you. So you're trying to basically tell me that Look, as bad as it is with them applying Jacobson and ignoring any semblance of bodily autonomy, like even in, in its most basic sense, we're not saying a right to abortion or assisted physician suicide. I mean, we're just saying your right to just literally breathe and be left alone without having a you know sub uh, you know a, a, this, uh, an injection under your skin with a spike protein. And it's very disappointing, but you're, you you think that the religious liberty thing could break this wide open. But my challenge to you is this. So on the one hand, we just had the Fulton uh, decision, the Philadelphia uh, gay adoption case with Catholic charities, Catholic adoption services, I mean. And basically the government said that as long as you're offering exemptions, you have to offer them um, you know, equally, and then you're subject to, to the law. And certainly here, they, by definition, have to offer medical exemptions to people who have cancer and, and whatnot. So that's how we're going to get them. We have very recent case law that's pretty strong, as much as we didn't like how narrow that Fulton decision was for what it was. But for these purposes, it really does help us. But here's the thing I'm getting from a lot of people. So... You know, everyone knows it has in all major religions that it's against homosexuality. Um, every, you know, you have Judaism, okay, so the guy can't work on Saturday. You got Baptists, they don't drink wine. I mean, that's known, it's documented. But what they're saying is that's BS. It's really a medical thing. You're concerned. You don't like the shot. There is no, and, and especially because all of the establishment voices in every major religion are, are pimping the vaccine. I mean, in my religion and your religion, all of them, they're all doing that. So, you know, all of the workplaces are denying it because they're saying, in other words, if they say we're not accepting religious exemptions, so then the court's going to hit them up and we have a good case. But they don't, they're like, yeah, we'll take it. But this, but case by case, they just turn them down because they say that's not valid. That's not, you know, you, you don't, there's, there's no religion. Show me the religion that wants it. Are the courts going to get in the nitty-gritty where you have to have priests and pastors and rabbis come before them and say, well, where does it say doctrinal in your thing, in the Bible, in your literature, that it's a problem? 
I would love one of those cases. And actually, we I think we have one with that Colorado case I mentioned to you, uh, two different plaintiffs, uh, where they're basically questioning the sincerity of their religious beliefs. So there's uh, a case you may be familiar with, uh, United States versus Seeger, uh, which came out uh, in the 1960s, which was a case, a conscientious objector case. Um, and it was Justice Clark wrote a beautiful decision in that case where he very, very clearly stated that it is not the government's place. The government is foreclosed from questioning the sincerity of one's religious beliefs. They cannot question that. So standing on that precedent, I absolutely would refuse to bring a priest or a rabbi, a minister into the courtroom because this person does not need their religious beliefs validated by a, a clergy member. You are allowed to have your own personal religious beliefs, and those are protected just as much under the First Amendment as someone who belongs to an organized religion, who goes to mass or, 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 or to synagogue every single week. They are just as protected if they practice in the home. And there's, uh, there's, there's several cases that I can point to to support that. So I think if this happens, if it comes down to that, and the government's stupid enough to make that argument, because I think that would be a really foolish argument to say it's not sincere, just because you don't belong to an organized religion or there's nothing in the official teaching that says that, um, if they're stupid enough to make that argument, I'm going to be very, very happy because we have strong precedent to stand on. And we can I think we can win those cases pretty easily, um, especially with this court that's much more favorable to religious liberty than any court that I've seen in the last. Well, I haven't even been alive 50 years, but I'd say probably in the last 50 years. Um, yeah. This is, you know, obviously I've been reading decisions that go way, way back beyond there. So in the last five decades, I'd say this is the most conservative uh, in terms of religious liberty, uh, the most supportive, I should say, of religious liberty than any Supreme Court that I've seen in, in the last five decades. So I, I think we've so, got a great chance. And, and it's interesting because because we saw that dichotomy, what you're saying, in the COVID fascism cases with the lockdowns, where it was very frustrating that the Supreme Court was allowing this stuff to go through. But the one angle, you know, in the Cuomo case out of New York, there was the uh, Nevada case and Newsom, where no, you had the church, yeah. church capacity. And Newsom. And, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was frustrating to us. But are you telling me, and I just want to get this clear, that the difference now is, see, back then, so it was limited to the church, literally. But in the context of religious liberty, conscience objections with the vaccine, anyone could could pursue those arguments. Yeah, and and I think you can, you can go back to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case as well uh, with Jack Phillips out of Colorado. Um, the court, even then, and that was less that was even less supportive of religious liberty than the current court we have now, because that was a few years ago. Remember, um, so that's before we had the the Trump appointees on the uh, on on this this court. Um, even then, the reason Jack Phillips won that case wasn't because they said, um, you know, he had to uh, make a cake for a gay wedding. The reason they won that he won that case is because the state of Colorado was extremely hostile in their questioning of him. They went back to, you know, when, when they were having a hearing and questioning him about his religious beliefs and how they were they were showing clear hostility toward religious beliefs. So even that court said you cannot you know, show this kind of open hostility to someone's beliefs and attack someone's beliefs 
again, attacking, um, you know, as I was saying, the sincerity of one's beliefs as well. So this court is even more supportive of religious liberty than that Supreme Court. So I honestly don't see how we lose a case like that, where the government is openly hostile and questioning the sincerity of someone's beliefs. I think those cases, we win every single one of them, which is why I'm, I'm taking the religious liberty art angle. I want to say one thing. You know, some people don't like that we're focusing so much on that. I had even someone reach out to me by email the other day who said, that's the coward's way out. You should be challenging just on uh, j- just on basic freedom. It's a human rights violation. You're a co- you're a coward. <laughs> you're a coward to, to be challenging. But you're not yeah. me. That's that's what they said. You're not a talk show host. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's it's true, and we all agree. But your job is to take people's donations and use them. You know, the bottom line is you would not be serving people properly if you made my arguments. As much as I believe in them, um, but you got to play with the courts that you have. Um, Brian, I just I know you you got to really run here. Two quick things in just uh, the two minutes we have. Um, Number one, okay, so fine. Let's say the court says you can't categorically banish someone from the workplace, government, maybe even private, um, for uh, you know religious uh, objections, and you have to offer them the way out. But what if then they say the way out is, and they're already doing this? For example, Michelin tires. They're saying everyone has to be vaccinated. Oh, but if you don't get vaccinated, okay, you don't get vaccinated. Everyone has to pay $100 a month until they get the shot. And if an unvaxxed person gets roped up in the contact tracing, by the way, because someone who was vaccinated got the freaking thing and and they they don't even have the virus, but they get roped into the quarantine from it. So they have to quarantine for two weeks, whereas the, you know, the vaccinated people don't. They have to test. They have to pay for the test. They have to pay for the time that they're in quarantine, whereas the vaccinated person doesn't have to. Um, are they able to do you think you're able to take cases like that? Absolutely. If there's an undue financial burden on the employee who chose to exercise their sincerely held religious beliefs and get an exemption, that's another form of religious discrimination. I can still use the religious discrimination angle because now you're taking a group of employees, the vast majority of whom have religious exemptions, because let's be honest here, Daniel, they are not approving hardly any medical exemptions. Okay. And even in a company like Michelin, I'd be surprised if out of every one of their locations, if they even had more than one or two uh, people with medical exemptions. I mean, I've talked to people who are leukemia patients, uh, someone else who had a uh, a heart, uh, not heart transplant, heart surgery, though, open heart surgery, denied, denied medical exemptions. People like that, if they're denied medical exemptions, I don't know who they're granting them to. So there's very, very few medical exemptions at most of these companies. I don't know the number specifically at Michelin. I, I don't, I'm not privy to that data. But my point is, I can almost guarantee you the vast majority of the exemptions granted are religious. So if you're going to penalize people and, and that penalty is going to have a disparate impact, that's another term that's used in, in, in civil rights law and discrimination law. It's going to have a, a, a disparate adverse impact on uh, people of who have religious beliefs opposed to this vaccination, then you are burdening their religious beliefs. And that runs afoul of Title VII, which applies to private companies like Michelin. Okay, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, in my opinion, we have a very strong case, especially if they're paying out of pocket, doing it on their own time, paying a fine, a weekly fine, like you said. If that's really happening, I want to talk to those Michelin employees because that is extremely discriminatory, in, in my opinion. 
Wow, very, very well said. And, and I hope you could take some of these cases before I let you go. Final frontier here. So your main approach is religious liberty, and I understand why. But talking about the meat and potatoes of it, um, until now, we haven't been able to get, outside of one Florida and Kentucky county judge that got into the actual science. But until now, they just take the government side. But my question is, when it came to mask litigation, so it's not like we had a definitive masked person and unmasked person. I mean, because there's no such thing. It's, you know, there's no indication on you how much you wore it or not and to show that it didn't work, even though in a macro sense, it was very clear it wasn't working. But here we have open data that the vaccinated are getting it and transmitting it at least as much, so much so that Joe Biden just yesterday went out and got a third shot, you know, because it wasn't it, it's wearing off. Um, and particularly, here's the main point. The strongest thing we have in science is that natural immunity, even when the shots were working, the breakthroughs were rare. Now it's not even breakthrough with the vaccine. It's prima facie. It just, it wears off. How, how in the world is there no legal angle, at least for a person that's like, dude, I love the shots. The shots are awesome. But I have natural immunity. I have prior infection. Here are my antibodies. I am less of a threat than the guy who's vaccinated but um, does have prior infection. How does that not factor in the litigation at some point? Well, I think it absolutely could in the testing cases, like I just mentioned. Um, If we bring a test, like, for instance, in your uh, hypothetical with Michelin, and and we don't have any pending litigation against Michelin yet, um, but hypothetically, if if we did, um, we would absolutely bring the science in uh, and show that, listen, you know, even if even if it weren't discriminatory to place this burden on people with religious beliefs, which it is, but even if it weren't, you have no rational basis for subjecting them to different terms and conditions of employment because the science doesn't support it. And that's when we bring in vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And we bring that into a testing lawsuit to make that case in court. And I have some expert witnesses. I'm not going to mention their names, but I have some great expert witnesses in mind that I think can support that, that I know can support that because they they have the studies, they have the data right at their fingertips, and they're eminently qualified to speak on it in, in a court of law. So I am actually thinking that the testing lawsuits are the best place to bring that up because then you can show that, you know, even if there weren't a burden on religion, it's it's still irrational because what the companies are doing Mm. isn't founded in science. Well, folks, you hear that. I mean, there's plenty of you out there emailing me. Um, You could email wethepatriotsusa.org. Is there a better way to get a hold of you? Is that where people should submit their inquiries? The best email to use is info at wethepatriotsusa.org, info at wethepatriotsusa. If you go through the general contact form, it's going to take longer for us to get back to you because we have to have uh, some of our volunteer assistants that have to go through those and find those, but the info comes directly into our inbox. So I'd use that. Again, I just want to close by saying if people are able to sign up for a monthly donation, we started a Commit to 10 campaign, which is asking everybody if they can just please um, commit to $10 a month and tell at least 10 people to do the same so that we, if we got thousands of people, I, I wow. know you, you have thousands of listeners, right? If we got, if we got every one of your listeners to just commit to $10 a month, we would be probably fully funded because even 10,000 people in the whole country from coast to coast, if we got 10,000 people to do that, that would be a hundred thousand a month for lawsuits. 
So that would be at least a couple of lawsuits a month. And that would and plus fund our organization so that we can expand and have more lawyers. I mean, we want to create a huge, huge litigation team so that we can uh, fight this tyranny from every possible angle in every circuit in this country. It can't just be these little pockets here. Right, right now we're starting with New York, Connecticut. Yes, we've got cases, like I said, Missouri, Nebraska, Colorado. But it needs to be everywhere. It needs to be in Florida. It needs to be in Texas. It needs to be in Ohio. It needs to be everywhere. California. We need to be fighting this everywhere all at once because that's what they're doing, Daniel. They're throwing everything they've got at us all at once as fast as they possibly can because they don't think there's any way we're going to be able to mobilize in time to defeat them in court. But with your listeners' help, I believe we can do that. We the PatriotsUSA.org. Absolutely. I can't encourage you enough to give generously. Um, I know Steve Dace's audience really helped fund uh, a lot of this New York lawsuit, and it has been successful so far. This might even be the silver bullet. Folks, you know, look, with the state legislatures not doing anything, I, I believe that's the option we always should pursue, but it's, you know, it is what it is. Here we at least have lawyers willing to help. Brian's one of the few, so let's help accordingly. Brian, thanks so much, and definitely keep us updated um, as this saga goes on. <laughs>